Well, good morning again, everyone. If you have a Bible, I would invite you to turn to Romans chapter 7. Romans 7. It's, and in just a moment or two, we're going to read from the first six verses. Most of you know we've been working our way through Romans 7, verse by verse. And so here we are this morning in a brand new chapter. Although it's continuation of Paul's question in chapter 6, as we'll find out in just a moment. All right, let's hear God's word. Romans 7, 1. Do you not know, brothers and sisters, for I am speaking to those who know the law, that the law has authority over someone only as long as that person lives? For example, by law, a married woman is bound to her husband as long as he is alive. But if her husband dies, she's released from the law that binds her to him. So then, if she has sexual relations with another man while her husband is still alive, she's called an adulteress. But if her husband dies, she's released from the law and is not an adulteress if she marries another man. So, my brothers and sisters, you also died to the law through the body of Christ, that you might belong to another, to him who was raised from the dead, in order that we might bear fruit for God. For when we were in the realm of the flesh... The sinful passions aroused by the law were at work in us so that we bore fruit for death. But now, by dying to what once bound us, we have been released from the law so that we serve in the new way of the Spirit and not in the old way of the written code. Amen. Thanks be to God for His Word. I don't know if you know this, but Friday, this past Friday, J.I. Packard passed away. And I was doing a little bit of reading, and in his final interview, he was asked the question um, if he had any final words to the church. And so he heard the question, waited about 10 seconds, and he said this, glorify Christ. Then he, he waited again, and then he added, every way. Glorify Christ every way. So let's pray to that end, please. Father, we we ask for your help now. And thank you that in our continuous asking, there is no shame in this. You, You do not say what is wrong with you when we ask for help. Rather, you say, my child, how can I help you? And so thank you. Thank you that we can honestly say we are weak and trembling I am as I preach this text. And in that confession, there is where your strength is found and your strength is needed. Mine is not nearly enough. So please, Father, for Jesus' sake, by your spirit, teach us from this text. Help us all know it and glorify your son, the Lord Jesus Christ, through it. Amen. Well, this can be a difficult section in Romans. And one helpful rule of biblical interpretation is that it's never wise to bring into a passage of Scripture our own ready-made agenda, insisting that it must answer our questions and address our concerns first. Because when we do that, we are actually dictating to God's Word instead of bowing and listening and in order to learn from God through His Word. Uh, Standing over the text, as it were, instead of bowing to the text. 
Therefore, fundamental to biblical interpretation is laying aside our presuppositions so that we can responsibly think ourselves back into the historical context and the cultural setting of the book, the grammar of the text. And so first, the text. What the writer was saying to his readers first, do your exegesis, do your interpretation work first, and then seek whatever application there may be in your questions. Let me give you an example. James writes, James chapter 2, Abraham believed God and it was reckoned to him as righteousness. You see that a man is justified by works and not by faith alone. For just as the body without the spirit is dead, so also faith without works is dead. However, Paul writes in Romans 3, for if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. For what does the scripture say? And Paul quotes the same scripture that James quotes. Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. Now to the one who works, his wage is not credited as a favor, but as what is due. But the one who does not work, but believe in him, believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is credited as righteousness. All right, so who's right? Is James, a man is justified by works and not by faith alone, or Paul? But to the one who does not work, but believes, who justify, believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is credited as righteousness. Who's right? Or is the History Channel right? The Bible does actually contradict itself. Or is this a mood thing? Okay, so when I'm in a good mood, hey, everybody, Romans 3, justified by faith, ice cream on me for everyone. Or if I'm in a bad mood, deepers creepers, is anyone going to do anything for Jesus Christ around here? Faith without works is dead. Everyone's grounded. Go to your room. You see, that's leading with ourselves, our own presuppositions, our own ready-made agendas, driving our understanding. In effect, we're preaching ourselves. However, when you do the hard work of interpretation first, we learn that there's two different contexts James and, Ro- and Paul is speaking to. Faith alone unites us to Christ's righteousness, and that faith unites us to Christ for righteousness does not remain alone. It bears the fruit of love, of obedience, in union with Jesus Christ. It must do so or it's dead. Therefore, the glory of Jesus Christ in the gospel is not merely that we're justified, when we depend entirely on Christ, but also that in depending entirely on Christ is the power that makes us new, loving, obedient people. Not by law, not by works, but by grace. We depend entirely on Christ is how we are justified and how we're sanctified. Paul struck one note, James struck the other. So, eyes on your own paper. (laughs) Work out your salvation with fear and trembling, for God is at work in you. God is at work. And therefore, we must be at work. We can now because of our union with Jesus Christ. Therefore, this is so important. We never move on from the gospel. We simply move on in the gospel. And you see, when you lay aside all your presuppositions and agendas and get into the text, its context, what is driving these words, then we have a better position to let the author say what he does say and not force him to say what we want him to say or maybe even what we need him to say. Now, that doesn't mean that there's not some current application for us. Of course, there could be. Not always, but there could be. And of course, there might be some questions. There might be. But only after you've done your homework, get underneath the scripture and not stand over the scripture. And that's why when we come to Romans 7, neediness and dependence, humility and grace and hard work 
It's very much needed because this is a difficult chapter. I may not be able to tell you everything you need to know about this chapter. I'm going to try, but I am limited. Your prayers will be very, very welcome. So let's remember that the thing that is driving these verses that we just read was Paul's question in chapter 6, verse 15. If your Bible is open, you'll see that. He's still answering that question in 6.15. What then shall we send because we're no, long, un, no longer under law but under grace? Answer, by no means, right? Are you out of your mind? Justification is not licensed to sin away. And the context which is driving that question is is Paul's remarkable statement in chapter 5, verse 20. Do you see it there? The law was brought in so that the trespass might increase. Okay? Not decrease, but increase. But where sin increased, grace increased all the more. And that verse sums up the previous verses of chapter 5, which Paul has been explaining our union with Jesus Christ. And he said, this is what you once were in Adam... But we are no longer that way. We are now in Christ. And therefore, because of Christ, because of his imputed righteousness, a gift given by faith, the Christian's future, listen carefully, is entirely guaranteed. The Christian's future is eternally secure. Why? How? Chapter 5, verse 20. Do you see it there? Where sin abound. Grace much more abound as sin reigned in death, so also grace might reign through the righteousness to bring eternal life through, and here it is, Jesus Christ our Lord. Now, Paul is well aware of the fact that once a statement like that is released, it is liable to some serious misunderstandings, and indeed it was being misunderstood. Paul already wrote in chapter 3 that he was slanderously reported, saying things that he didn't say. Which reminds us of at least two things. Here's the first thing. If while we preach and proclaim the gospel, and we are not exposing ourselves to some kind of attacks, we probably aren't really preaching the gospel. That's the first thing. The second thing, the church in Rome was filled with Jewish people who had been converted. And many Jewish Christians had difficulty letting go of their understanding of the law. Because the law was how they used to relate to God. And therefore, letting go of their works as a way to relate to God was really tough on them. Obedience to them used to mean more obedience meant more God and more blessing and less trouble. Okay? That's what it used to be. And less obedience meant less God and less blessing and more trouble. And so we better obey. That was their old way. That was, if you would, the letter of the law. So, when Paul preaches justification by faith alone, when he said in the gospel, this is chapter uh, 1, verse 17, in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed, namely, that his righteous people live by faith, that through the works of the law, no one will be declared righteous. It just seemed to them that he's doing away with the law altogether. Hence that question. You see it there in chapter 6, verse 15? Shall we sin because we are no longer under law but under grace? And that takes us to our first point, the law. Law. Now, when you read the Bible, and more so the Old Testament, the law of God was given great, great honor. It had a whole lot of synonyms as well. His statutes, his commandments, Ordinances, testimonies, precepts, word. 
Solomon, listen to this. Solomon wrote in Ecclesiastes 12, verse 13, Fear God and keep his commandments, for this is the duty of all mankind. In other words, the whole human race ought to obey the law of God. Moses told his father-in-law that his primary duty was to make known God's statutes and to make known God's laws. That's Exodus chapter 18, verse 16. King David said, you know this one, the law of God is perfect, Psalm 19.7. And so God's law so dominated ancient Israel that many Jews made it virtually an idol. So much so that by the time Jesus Christ steps onto the scene of human history, many Jews considered their obedience to the law as the way to salvation. And God never intended for that. Faithfulness to the law superseded faith in God who gave the law, which again was not God's intent. And a great example of that is John chapter 5, when Jesus said this to the Pharisees and the scribes of the law. You study the scriptures diligently because you think that in them you have eternal life. See, Jesus goes on. These are the very scriptures that testify about me. Yet you refuse to come to me to have life. You see, they thought that the law, obedience to it, gave life. Which is why, read the Gospels, Jesus was so hounded by the Pharisees and the teachers of the law as being what? What was the one thing they said often about Jesus? He is a lawbreaker. He is immoral. But there's more. As you read through the opening chapters of Romans, Paul's explanation of the law is not very endearing, we'll say. He makes it clear in practice, one, that no human being has ever succeeded in obeying the law. Uh, Not Father Abraham, remember Romans 4? And not King David. And therefore the law cannot be a way of salvation. Indeed, listen to what he said, Romans 3.20, the law reveals sin. Romans 3.19, the law condemns the sinner, condemns, in fact, the whole human race. Chapter 4, verse 15, the law brings wrath. Chapter 5, verse 20, this is the what the law increases. It does not decrease trans, trespasses, meaning more rules means more right. That is not right. And because of this, God's righteousness has been revealed, Romans chapter 1, verse 17, apart from the law. And sinners are only justified not through obeying the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. That's Romans 3, 28, which says, we maintain that a person is justified by faith apart from the works of the law. So there was this godlike worship of the law. And when this idea of salvation by grace through faith alone, apart from the law, of no longer being under the law, but under grace, is set forth in the gospel to many of the Jewish Christians in the church, That seemed like the perfect way a person could, you know, have their cake and eat it too, you you nasty Gentiles, right? So a person could trust God and do as they please. I learned this song three weeks ago, just one line. Freed from the law, O blessed condition, I can sin all I want and still have remission. That's a terrible song. Paul says here, by no means. 
No way. Chapter 6, you see it there in the opening verses of 6. You are united in body, in spirit, to the second person of the Trinity, Jesus Christ. You have participated in his death, chapter 6, verse 3. You have been raised in his resurrection, chapter 6, verse 5. You've been given his righteousness, Romans 3. You've been set free, uh, chapter 6, verse 18, from sin. You are a slave of righteousness. So sin away is not a Christian's response. How could it be? And again, that drove the question of chapter 6, verse 15. Shall we sin because we are no longer under law but under grace? That's our first point. That's the law. Second point, the line. And as in this is a self-evident line of thinking which Paul is going to take his readers down to continue to answer this question. So if you would, have a look down at your Bibles, please, in chapter 7, verse 1. Paul says, do you not know, brothers and sisters, for I'm speaking to those who know the law, that the law has authority over someone as long as that person lives. For example, by law, a married woman is bound to her husband as long as he is alive. But if her husband dies, she's released from the law that binds her to him. And he has this extended analogy, which is pretty understandable and pretty simple. Here's his point. Death breaks the power of the law. Death breaks the power of the law. Okay, so how so? Well, the vows of a marriage, and by the way, it's kind of ironic that yesterday I was officiating a marriage. And I remember this. The vows in them have this classic line, as long as we both shall live. Okay, so these vows matter, as long as we both shall live. So if the husband should die, or the wife should die, then all those vows and all those promises justifiably and legally dies with them. The covenant is no longer binding. Death breaks the power of the law. Consequently, the husband or the wife, whoever is living, is in the eyes of God completely free to remarry again. If that is what they desire. Just as a brief aside, we have a lot of widows in our church. And I always pray that if they decide to marry, then God help them, bless them to that end. Because marriage is a binding legal relationship as long as they both shall live. However, if one dies... The other is free from the law of marriage. Death breaks the power of the law. And Paul here states this as a, as a if you would, a legal maxim. Universally accepted and understandably un, unchallenged. Death breaks the, the power of the law. If you like, you cannot sentence a person if they've already died. Make sense? That takes us to our third point, the lesson. And what Paul does here is he takes the analogy of marriage, not a complete parallel, but in principle really, really perfect, and he applies it to the Christians. So this is what he says. In the same way that the death of a spouse is what frees the other spouse to remarry, in the Christian's case, it is our death in Christ, our conversion, which in part had that metaphysical death with Christ that frees us from the law to, if you would, to remarry and to belong to Jesus Christ. Meaning our old spouse was the law, okay? We were under it, therefore we were justifiably, un, justifiably under its condemnation and its accusations and its wrath. I mean, that's the right use of the law before our conversion, before we died to the law. The law would condemn, right? Now, just think of that in the context of a marriage. Before our conversion, the law would condemn. Yes, yes, sweetheart, 
Right? Yes, yes, dear. You are right. I blew it again. I am a no good cotton headed ninny monger. I'm so sorry. I blew it. Why? Because the law reveals my dirt. And I am dirty. We never measure our holiness against other people's sins. That's too easy. We measure our holiness against God's holiness. And in the law, we see, we see God's holiness perfectly. And that is a dirt-revealing mirror. And in our marital arguments, the law would always win, right? You are right, honey. I should have taken out the garbage. I'm so sorry. You're right. Or you are right, dear. A man should not be afraid of dogs. I'm sorry. I'm going to try to get more strength and more courage. I'm sorry. Now, just a bit ahead of ourselves, this will help. This is Galatians 2.19. For through the law, Paul writes, I died to the law so that I might live for God. Meaning it was the law itself, which was like a thunderous hammer coming down to show us our guilt, to drive us to Jesus Christ so that we could die. Right? So the law was like, you liar, you luster, you covet, you, you put something else before God. You disobey your parents. You hate. You, you, you. Through the law, I died to the law. So when you look at the law of God, you see the depth of your spiritual need. You look to Jesus Christ and you see grace and you see every spiritual need fully met in him. That's justification. You look at the law, it exposes our blindness even to our own sin. Grace covers our blindness with the very righteousness of Jesus Christ. The law exposes sin. God's grace in Jesus Christ delivers us from sin. So notice there in Galatians 2 and here in chapter 7 verse 4 of Romans, Paul has not said that the law has died. He just said that we have died. Verse 4, so my brothers and sisters, you also died to the law through the body of Christ that you might belong to another, to him who was raised from the dead in order that we may, might bear fruit for God. Now, notice Paul's shift here. It's not that our spouse has died, but you have died. Again, Paul has not said that the law has died. However, he is saying that we have died with Christ. So our marriage to the law, if you like, is over so that the law will no longer have dominion over you the way it had before you died to the law. So if you think about it, in one sense, the law was a terrible spouse because it just kept telling you how guilty you are. But in another sense, it was a wonderful spouse because it drove you to Jesus Christ. The law was always increasing our trespasses. It's condemnation, justifiably. But if you like, in Christ, when we became one with Christ, no longer any condemnation, no longer any accusations, and no wrath ever again for the Christian. How is that possible? Well, Paul says it so simply, because we died in Christ. And in the person of Christ alone, the law was fulfilled. This is important. It is not our obedience that silences the law. It was the obedience of Jesus Christ. So whether it was a ceremonial law, and that's kind of important. I mean, think about the Jewish Christian who was in the church in Rome. And he's struggling because their old worship was like a sight, sound, smell, extravaganza. That was Old Testament worship. 
And, and now that's no longer needed. All those bells and whistles you don't need anymore. You pray and you sing and you do God's word and you, and you fellowship. Or the moral law, how they would relate to God. Or the law of conscience, self-standard of living. All that has been completed in Christ. And so the gospel principle is this. When we become Christians, we are in a complete change in relationship and a brand new allegiance. And in the marriage metaphor that Paul uses here in verse 4, he's saying, in effect, you're married to Jesus now. You belong to Jesus. Indeed, the word there, genomachi, it means born into, being transitioned from one point, the realm of death, to another, the realm of Christ. Because we have died with Christ, and now we are alive with Christ. Because death breaks the power of the law, and if you would, Christ resuscitates. So again, verses 4 to 6, Paul applies this to the Christian. While it is the death of the one spouse which frees the other spouse to remarry, in our case, it is our death in Christ to the law that frees us to belong to Jesus. And that means that becoming a Christian is a complete change in relationship. Again, and a complete change in allegiance. And so when we said, I do, to Jesus, here's the thing. We got this tidal wave of, of grace. What a wedding that was. You received his righteousness. You received his faith. You received his obedience. You received on and on and on. All is Christ, and you are in Christ, Paul would tell the Corinthian church. So all is yours. And that's an incredible metaphor when you talk about conversion, a marriage to Jesus Christ. To be a Christian then is to fall in love with Jesus and to enter into a legal, personal relationship with Jesus Christ, just as complete as marriage. You know, these were some of the vows that were said last night. I honor you with my body, and with all my worldly goods with you I share. Completely comprehensive. My body is your body. My stuff is your life. My life is your life. No part of our lives go unchanged or remain unaffected, at least in a good marriage. I live for Christ. I said I do. I said I do. So though the Christians then are not under law, they have every aspect and every area of their lives changed by the coming in of Jesus Christ. He moves in. Nothing is untouched. Nothing is untouched by the holy hands of Jesus. So I was thinking uh, this week, in the very first week of my marriage to my wife, we had two incredible episodes. First one was the peanut butter and bread episode, and the second one was the dishwasher episode. It almost ruined the marriage. Not really, but we were really, really young back then. I grew up in South Florida. Heat, humility was like perpetual. So in our home in South Florida, we put peanut butter and we put bread in the refrigerator along with the rest of humanity, or so we thought. So it's week one in the marriage. Honey, I said, honey, where is the peanut butter and where is the bread? I'm looking for it in the refrigerator, but I cannot find it. And she had the audacity to say, who keeps peanut butter and bread in the refrigerator? Now, I could have, and I'm not exaggerating, I'm pretty sure she said moron, like you moron. I can't prove it. She still denies it. But I was like, you know, what did I get myself into? Who is this woman? 
room temperature bread and, and room temperature peanut butter. But for this reason, a man should leave his mother and father who put peanut butter and bread in the refrigerator and be united to his wife who does not put peanut butter and bread in the refrigerator and the two become one. That was the first test. The second test was growing up in a home with eight kids, we never used our automatic dishwasher. We had one. We never used it. We had eight pretty great dishwashers. So the first time, and I guess I am such a moron, but the first time we had dirty dishes, I was just piling them up in the sink. And my wife put them in the dishwasher. And I honestly, had, I had never used a dishwasher before. And I was like, what are you doing? <laughs> you know, first the peanut butter and now the dishwasher. I knew we should have had a lot more premarital counseling, right? For this reason, a man will leave his mother and father who never really used a dishwasher. And he'll be united to his wife. You see, that's the point. When you say, I do, everything changes. And when we said, I do, to Christ, everything changed. I used to be under the power of sin. And I used to be under the power of the law to condemn me. But then I was married to Jesus. And he rescued me from all those things. I am not condemned. And I am not under the power of the law. That is inescapable. Verse 4, you died to the law through the body of Jesus Christ that we would belong to another, to him who has raised us from the dead in order that we might bear fruit for God. Now listen carefully. That's written in the present active indicative. And what that means is, is that the Christian is right now dead to the law. That is our reality, dead right now to the law. We, that means no more condemnation, no more accusation, no more ramifications of God's wrath on us. Period. He goes on, in order that we may bear fruit for God, okay? And not bear fruit for what? So we do not obey to secure our salvation. We do not obey to secure blessings. We do not obey to secure more love or acceptance from God. No way. We are in union with Christ. That stuff is dead. We have all that we need. That's justification. Now when we obey... And we should obey because we are married to Jesus. We belong to him. Now being justified, we've been given a new heart. And now the law of God is written on that new heart. And now we obey because we love. We love Jesus Christ. And we want to please him. Now stay with me. So in a terrible home, in a terrible home, the mom or the dad or the kids are always in a bad mood. And if you don't pander to them, their mood will dictate to the whole household. And so whether it's the kids are in a bad mood or mom or dad are in a bad mood, if it, you just do right, right? You have to do right just to pander to them. They have their law list. You don't do this and you never do that. So then obedience is not out of love, but either out of fear or fatigue or you just want to shut them up, right? Would you just stop? Here's my obedience. Here. But with the law as your spouse, that's never going to be enough. I mean, the law is right. And therefore, we will never be right with God by putting our hope in our own righteousness. I mean, the root of just about every heresy is so much thinking that we can somehow make ourselves good enough for God. But when love is in the home and when grace 
is abounding in that healthy home, healthy marriage. We do things because we just flat out love them and we want to serve them. Not trying to secure something from them. No, we're just doing it for them. And when we fail them or they fail us, Christianity 101, we forgive them. First point, the law was highly honored, but it was very limited. Second point, death breaks the power of the law. Third point, you've died to the law. You have a new spouse. You belong to Jesus. Love is in the air. You know that song, Love is in the Air? Obedience now is from the heart. Final point then, leverage. And so what Paul does, he compares our old life to the new life, and it's verse 5. You see there, for when we were in the realm of the flesh, the sinful passions aroused by the law, that's a really important statement, were at work in us so that we bore fruit for death. And forgive me, but that's written in the imperfect middle indicative. And what that means is, this is why I tell you, before we came to Christ, pre-conversion, we habitually had sinful passions the law itself would arouse, okay? So this is why I always say, if you just learn the law flat, no gospel, no Christ, all that does is excites our unrighteousness, not righteousness, okay? So imperfect middle indicative. So before we came to Christ, pre-conversion, we had these habitual sinful passions, the law itself aroused, indicative of the fact that we were dead in our sins, we were slave to sins. We bore fruit for death. The wages of sin, death. So death here is that spiritual deadness that the law excited. If you would, the law excited all our passions to death. But now, it's not the law that has been removed or the law that is dead. Rather, again, in Christ, we have died to the condemning power of the law. We have, we have if you would, in Jesus Christ, one who has taken the full curse of the law himself so that we no longer have the burden, the condemnation, the accusation of the law on our backs because we're married to Jesus, belong to Jesus, and he's dealt with that decisively at the cross. And now listen carefully then. That is the final answer to the question, can a Christian live as he or she chooses, right? That's Romans 6.15. Let me just ask you. Men, can you live as you choose in your marriage? Those of you that are married? Ladies, can you live as you choose in your marriage? By no means. Because we've been changed. We belong to another. We are in Christ. We are in love with Jesus Christ. So just to push the analogy just a bit further, when we get married, that involves a significant loss of freedom and of independence, right? You can't live like you want anymore because you don't want to. I mean, single person, you can do that. That's fine. But when you say, I do, there is love and there is intimacy and our loss of freedom is a joy. So a Christian freedom is not, you know, we could do whatever we want. It's so that we can finally do what we need to do and enjoy what it means to obey Jesus Christ. And in a good marriage, in a good marriage, your whole life is affected and changed by the wishes and the duties of the person that you are in love with. 
It's beautiful. And you want to discover what makes her happy, what makes him happy. And when you find that out, you begin to change. And it's a beautiful process because you belong to each other. The law is, okay, hey, you are doing it wrong. Christ is, hey, I did it right for you. You're dead to the law. And I'm going to help you do it right now. I'm going to be gentle, the words of Jesus. I'm going to be lowly because I am gentle and lowly in spirit. And I want you to rest even though I want you to work out your salvation with fear and trembling. So now, now Paul has given us the ultimate answer to how do, how do Christians live? Well, we are not under law in that we, we don't obey the law out of fear of rejection. In other words, we aren't using the law as a system of salvation, leverage as a way of acceptance or access to God or a ladder up to God. Absolutely not. Jesus' perfect life and Jesus' perfect death is the ladder up to God. So there's just one step on the ladder to God, and it's Jesus. Just one step, Jesus. And we are accepted in him because of it. Meaning, again, that the law is not leverage. Right? The more I do, then the more you better give, right? I'm doing it, you better that's gone. That's dead. So does the Christian ignore the moral law? Absolutely not. I mean, do not lie. Is that a good one? Do not steal. Don't covet. Don't kiss other people. No other gods. Don't misuse God's name. Right? Those laws are all now written on our heart. That, if you would, that's our love language. That's our love language. The law of God teaches us what it means to love God and what it means to love each other. God loves honesty and he loves purity. He loves generosity. He loves truth, integrity, kindness, forgiveness, mercy, and on and on. And now we do too because we belong to him. Using the law as a love language will ruin the marriage. Verse 6, but now by dying to once bound us, we have been released from the law so that we serve in the new way of the spirit and not in the old way of the written code. So we are not under law. We, we are not married to it. We are married to Jesus Christ. We're seeking to please him. So the law's precepts are God's way to teach us how to give honor to the one we love. By obeying the law, we please Christ. The law is no longer a burden. It is now a delight. So listen carefully. This is how we'll end. When the person who worries about grace, grace, grace and says of a person who, who was saved totally by grace and could not be directed, they would lose, uh, rejected, they would lose all incentive to live a holy life. This is Paul's answer to that. Hey, are you married to the law? Are you married to Jesus Christ? Married to the law, old nature excites your sin, brings you to your knees and tells you you are guilty. Married to Jesus Christ brings us to our knees in worship and obedience to him because he keeps telling us we are not guilty. We are not guilty because of his death and resurrection. And therefore we died to the law. It's so beautiful. I keep telling you this. This is one of the reasons why I'm a Christian. This is, this is rational. You see... The law has limits. Jesus Christ does not. And if you're a Christian, you are in Christ. 
So again, this isn't sin away. You're covered. Rather, this is obey away. Because you've been changed. If you're in Christ. Thanks for your attention. Let's, let's pray together. Oh, Father, when Satan tempts us to despair and reminds us of the guilt within, upward we look and see him there who made an end to all our sin. Because the sinless Savior died, our sinful soul is counted free. For God, the just, is satisfied to, to look on him and pardon me and you in Christ. Father, thank you that every word in that song is true. We don't deserve it to be true, but we need it to be true. And so we praise you that in Jesus Christ, it is absolutely true. May we enjoy our belonging to you, Lord Jesus Christ, as we move around in these days until you return or till you call us home. For Jesus' sake, we say these things. Amen.